favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the woman with the alabaster jar. And it appears in all four Gospels. And it's there because when she performed this prophetic act to Jesus, he said, wherever this Gospel is preached, tell this story in remembrance of her. And so all four Gospel writers put it in their story of Jesus. And what she did was Jesus, um, of course, was getting prepared to go to the cross. And up until this time, he had been telling the disciples that he was going to die, but it was mostly in parables. We've been talking about outer ears and inner ears. And so he's been sharing these parables about nature and different things, and they're hearing them with their natural ears, but spiritually they aren't understanding what he's saying. But as he's getting closer to going to the cross, he just starts saying it plain. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again. And it's kind of, it's funny, but it's not funny because he's just saying it in a way that their natural ears should actually be able to understand it. But it's almost like it, it's, they don't want that to be true, but it's almost like they're, they're going, is this a parable? Like, are you really going to die? Like, is this a spiritual truth that we're not getting? Because he's saying it plain as day, I'm going to die, and they're not getting it. But this woman, she gets it. And I like to think that as they're sitting around the table there and Jesus is talking, I like to think that she's, she's close and she's looking at the tears welling up in his eyes as he's talking about his suffering. She's kind of seeing his lip quiver and she's listening. We've been talking about hearing God, getting close to the Lord. I like to think that she's just listening, not only on a natural level, but a spiritual level, and she hears him. The rest of them are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom or whatever they're talking about. But she's listening. And so she slips away and she gets this alabaster jar of extremely expensive perfume. And we know the story. She cracks, she cracks the jar, breaks it over his head. And the people watching, they get jealous. They, they get frustrated because it's worth a lot. And it could have gone to the poor. And they're arguing. And Jesus rebukes them. And he, he says that famous line, you know, he says, she's done this to prepare me for my burial. Wherever this gospel is taught, tell this story in remembrance of her. Something that she did moved his heart extremely deeply. Not only did she prepare him for his burial, because of course we know in the story that they won't have time to put spices on his body. And so she's doing it in advance, just prophetically knowing what he needs. But it also symbolized Jesus. That alabaster jar was his body, and it was broken. And the, the fragrance inside, the life of Christ, and the Spirit of God was released through what he did on the cross. But also, and this is how it applies to us on our freedom journey, it really represents us, because Christ is the one that we're modeling our life after. It represents you and me on this freedom journey. That alabaster jar is our body, and it's our soul. It's what's containing the Spirit of God. And in order for that fragrance to be released, you and I have to be broken so that the fragrance of Christ can be poured out to the world around us. Now what happens is we become jar admirers. We don't realize that we're doing it, but we admire the jar. We admire, um, if we go to the soul level, we admire someone's intellect or their ability to be clever or uh, they're inspirational, they touch the realm of the emotions. We admire the jar, and we forget that there's a fragrance of the living God. We were singing just a moment about the splendor of the king. The splendor of the king is on the inside of us. 
And the jar only has value because of what it's holding. It's meant to be cracked. It's meant to be broken. It's meant to be released to the world around us. And so today is about how do we release what's inside of us? I mean, if we had a clue what was inside of us, the power that's inside of us, the love, the joy, the peace, and it's meant to be released to our neighbors. It's meant to be released to the people that we work with and the people that we come in contact with. And how sad it would be if we got to the end of our life and the people that came in contact with us only came in contact with the jar rather than the fragrance of the living God that's on the inside of us. And so today we're going to talk about breaking that jar. And there's seven keys to navigating suffering. Here's the first one. We have to understand why we're suffering. We can suffer for a variety of reasons. And some of them, they're unexplainable. We, we were talking at our table. Like, it's just hard to even understand what was the purpose in that. You know, we quote verses like, God can use all things together for good. But there's some things we look at and we just go, how can God possibly use that for good? So suffering is a difficult topic. Let's, let's talk about four different types of suffering. This is in your handout as well. The first one is sin by us. So this happens because of the choices we make. Of course, we know that God has put into the universe a law of sowing and reaping. So if we sin, there's going to be consequences. If we go deep down that hole of sin, there's going to be deep consequences. And so a lot of the times that we suffer, it's because of our own sin. Number two is sin by others. So this is sin that's directed at us or against us, or sometimes we're just collateral damage. So if someone rejects us or betrays us or slanders against us or steals, it's directed at me. But I also can be in relationship with people that sin and go deep down into sin, and because I'm connected with them, I suffer because I'm collateral damage. So they didn't direct it at me, but because of their choices and I'm connected with them, maybe they steal from my company and now I lost my job. I'm collateral damage. So there's sin by me, suffer for that, number one. And then number two is sin by other people, whether it's directed at me or whether it's collateral damage. And then number three is sin by both. And this is especially true when we're in relationships. Almost always, if it's relational suffering, there's a piece of the pie that we have to own. Whether it's 5%, 50%, we have to own our part of it. And I've seen this so much because I've been doing ministry for a long time, but when relationships are involved, and especially if it's a marriage relationship that's going through a divorce, people have a really, really hard time seeing their part in it. But there's always a part of it, typically, that you have to own. And if you don't own that 10% or that 20% of it, what will happen is you'll, you'll end up reliving it somehow, where that, that part of your character will surface again because there's a part of it that you need to heal and grow from. And so relationship, relational suffering can get pretty messy. Number four is fallen world. Some of our suffering happens just because of what happened in the garden. We live in a fallen world that has pandemics and tragedies and traumatic things that happen, natural disasters. So a lot of times there's not something that we can point at, even though we like to do that. There's not someone that we can point at and say it's your fault. It's just the result of living in, in a fallen world. If we go back to Job in the Old Testament, he's the classic example of this. 
there was no reason uh, that anything that he did or somebody else did, when we know behind the scenes, because the scripture tells us it was really a cosmic battle between God and Satan, but God never even enlightened Job to that. And then his friends, remember later on, they're listening to him, and then they finally start saying, well, maybe it's because you did this, maybe it's because you did that. And they're adding insult to his injury because it wasn't his fault. It was nobody's fault. It was just this, he lives in a fallen world. And he was collateral damage of living in a fallen world. So number one is we have to understand why we're suffering. And I want you to think of this in terms of diagnosis and a remedy. Just like if you go to the doctor, they diagnose what's wrong, and then they give you a remedy. So if we don't diagnose properly why we're suffering, we can't apply the correct remedy. Number one, understand why you're suffering. Number two is double check number one. Double check number one. We are never more blind than when we're in pain. And when we are hurting, that's when we can often have those planks in our eyes that Jesus talks about. And because we want to blame, we want to externalize, it's everybody's fault, it's God's fault, it's Satan's fault, and we don't want to take on the part that was really our part to play. So double check number one. And in doing that, don't just double check with yourself. Go talk to some people that know you well, that know your story, that you trust, and ask them this tough question, what do you see that I don't see? If you're going through a prolonged season of suffering, what do you see that I don't see? And be open to receiving that feedback. Number three is understand the proper remedy. So we got to diagnose properly, but then we need to understand what the cure is. If I have cancer, I don't need a Band-Aid. If I cut my arm, I don't need chemotherapy. All right, so we have to apply the proper remedy. If it's sin by us, the remedy is I need to confess and repent. And my confession needs to be as public as my sin. So if I sin just against God, then I need to confess and repent just to God. But if I sin against you, I need to confess to God and you. If I sin against a whole group of people, I need to confess to God, but I need to repent and confess and make that right with the whole family or the whole group of people. And so my remedy needs to be repentance and confession, but what it doesn't need to be is the people that are in my life shielding me from consequences. Sowing and reaping is there so that the pain of my consequences will push me to my knees so that I'll confess and repent. I still need you to love me. I still need you to be gracious with me, but I don't need you to shield me from consequences because that prevents the desire that God has through that type of suffering. Sin by other people. Somebody sins against me, and, and this gets, the more close we are to the person, the more difficult this remedy becomes. Because if it's a betrayal or a rejection, we're going to have to go through a forgiveness process. We're going to have to go through a healing process. Forgiveness is, you've heard it say it's a decision, but it's a decision to go on a journey. Because the deeper the pain, the longer that journey may be. So forgiveness and, and healing, I have to restore my trust in other people. And then if it's sin because of being in a fallen world, let's say I lose someone to cancer or I lose a child in a tragic accident, I'm going to have to go through a healing and a grieving process. That's part of the remedy. But typically my faith is tested when I go through those difficulties. And so I'm going to have to restore my faith and trust in God. I'm going to have to build my faith muscle back up because it could get pretty damaged during that time. And then also you have to adapt to a new reality. 
of life without this person. And so there's a journey that we have to go on to recover from suffering. I want you to, to think here in terms of, like I said, a natural diagnosis and a natural cure. These are ailments of the soul. So if I am suffering by my own sin and I start applying the remedy of um, trying to get other people to comfort me, or, so I, you know, I'm saying that it's everybody else's fault. I'm trying to get other people to comfort me or I'm trying to go through this process of healing that doesn't involve confession or repentance, I'm going to stay stuck. So I think you get the idea that you have to apply the right remedy. My cousin, uh, several years ago, she was in her late 20s, and she had, a, I can't remember what the surgery was, but it wasn't, a big, it wasn't a big deal. It was just kind of an outpatient thing. She went in for the surgery, and the doctor got confused. I don't know what happened, but he took out her kidney. She was in her late 20s. Wrong cure for her diagnosis. She didn't go in for kidney cancer, but she got her kidney removed. But we can do the same thing to people spiritually. Somebody comes to us, and they're suffering, and we start being like Job's friends, saying, well, maybe you sinned. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it's your problem. Well, we, can, we can do a lot of damage to people. So as we're walking through suffering, or we're walking alongside someone who's suffering, it's extremely important that we diagnose each other properly and apply the proper remedy. All right? So that's kind of the basis of what we're going to talk about the rest of the time. What I want to transition into is taking a look at the life of the Apostle Peter, because I think he's such a great study on the topic of suffering. It's almost like there's two versions of Peter. There's Simon Peter, or Simon, which is before the cross, and then there's the Apostle Peter, which is after the cross. Before the cross, it just seemed like Peter, Simon Peter, was suffering adverse. You ever notice that? And then afterwards, he totally changed his tomb. Before the cross, Jesus renames him to Peter and gives this incredible proclamation about his life. And then uh, just a few verses later, Jesus starts saying, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. Suffering, right? And so Peter starts rebuking him. No, I'm never going to let you go because he's suffering adverse. I'm not going to let you suffer that way. And Jesus, he just renamed him from Simon to Peter. And then he gave him a new name. He started calling him Satan because he was trying to prevent him from the suffering that he had to do. So it's, it's actually a little bit comical. Simon, Peter, Satan, wait, what, what's, his, what's his name? But he's suffering adverse. And then they go to Gethsemane, and, and they come to arrest Jesus, and he's the one that takes out the sword and cut off somebody's ear because he doesn't want Jesus to suffer. And, of course, he's in the, in the courtyard there with the young girl who's by the fire, and she starts saying, weren't you with him? Weren't you with Jesus? And Peter denies Christ three times because he doesn't want to suffer. So there's this suffering adverse version of Peter. And he absolutely humiliates himself because of what he did and denying Christ and just all the craziness and chaos that surrounded the crucifixion. And so we see this broken Peter on the other side of the cross. And I love that story in the Bible where Jesus recreates the fire scene after Jesus has resurrected and she asked him three times if he knew Christ. And then Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And he's reinstating Peter. And after that, we see this totally different version of Peter where the jar is broken and the Spirit of God is, is um, pouring out of him. And so when we go to 1 Peter, he's, he's actually writing to Gentile believers who are suffering. 
And a lot of the epistle is him writing about suffering, and he has a totally different tune than he did before the cross. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1.7. He says, these, and he's referring to trials, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, these Gentile believers had come to Christ, and before they came to Christ, they were idolaters, they had unbridled lust, they just lived for themselves, all the pleasures of the world, and now they came to Christ, and they're a little bit disillusioned, kind of like Peter used to be. I thought this was going to be a good thing. I thought this was going to bring life and joy, and, and now I'm suffering. And so he's writing this letter and just trying to impart into them the things that he's learned, and he uses this metaphor here of gold refined by fire. And we see this several times throughout Scripture, but I love that Peter uses it here when he's talking about trials. Because the way that gold is refined by fire is it, when you have gold in its natural form, in the, in the nuggets, it has to be melted down. And then when it's melted down, it turns into a liquid. And as the heat gets turned up, the impurities that are in the gold come to the surface. And there's actually like this kind of, they call it dross. It's like a the black liquid impurities at the top. And what the refiner does with his equipment on to shield from the heat is he takes a ladle and he begins ladling out the impurities. And he's setting the impurities aside. And then when he gets the gold to a pure state and it's in liquid form, he can put it into the mold or to the form that he intends to make it into what he wants it to be for whatever purpose he wants to use it. And so Peter here is using this metaphor saying these trials, this suffering that you're experiencing, it's bringing the impurities out of you. You've got to cooperate in the process. But here's what happens when we suffer. And I know this because I've done it many times. The heat gets turned up. The impurities start coming to the surface. All of a sudden, here comes little Miss Nasty. Where did she come from? And here comes the temper problem. And whoa, there's the insecurity. And there's the jealousy. And this stuff starts popping up and we feel exposed. We're embarrassed and I just lost it in front of everybody that I work with or I just showed this really vulnerable, ugly side of me and it starts coming to the surface and God's up in heaven going, awesome. This is so great. I want to get this out. Not because I want her to be in the fire and I want her to feel the pain and we were singing about the goodness of God. I'm glad that this happened because I am good and I'm going to get rid of this and I'm going to form her into who I've created her to be. But what do we do when we're in that fire? We do not like it. So we jump out of the pot, and we do what Joe talked about a couple weeks ago. We look for that environmental change. I want to go be around different people. I'm going to get a different job. I'm going to move to a new city. I'm breaking up with you. I'm getting new friends. I'm going to a new church. And what God has to do is he has to start orchestrating our life so that the heat gets turned up again. See, I think a lot of our suffering, and I'm not talking about the kind that is the fallen world. I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. I'm talking about the relational suffering and the sin by us and the stuff that we play a part in. I think a lot of that stuff is ordered by God. We think it's the enemy opposing us. I think a lot of that stuff is God putting us in a scenario where the impurities come up because he wants to deal with it. And if we jump out of the pot, he'll reorchestrate things so that it comes up again. And part of what we have to do to walk in freedom is take a step back and look at our life patterns. And how does this keep happening? 
new set of people, new set of friends, new set of job, but yet this part of my character keeps coming out. My insecurity keeps coming out. Maybe it's not the enemy. Maybe it's the refiner that loves you so much and wants to answer your prayer about being used by God and winning your family to the Lord. Maybe he's trying to remove that stuff, and so he's actually ordering your steps for it to be brought to the surface. What happens, uh, not only do we jump out of the pot over and over, but our tendency is, if it's happened two or three or four times, we actually grab the ladle from God. And we'll grab that dross, and it's your fault. And it's my ex-husband's fault, and it's my dad's fault, what he did when I was seven years old. And then, if we get real spiritual about it, we'll say, it's your fault. (laughs) You sent me there, God. It's your fault. You did it. And every time we don't cooperate in the fire, God has to back off. All right? So number two, I'm sorry, number two. Number four, I'm not even sure if I said number four. Understand that suffering produces glory. Did I do that one? That's number four. Peter said that the, the refine, when we're refined by fire, it results in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So it's refined in the fire. Now, number five is to understand that God loves you. So we talk about this refining process. We're like, ouch, that hurts, that sounds awful. And then we start to realize, yeah, that's actually happened to me or it's been happening to me. What we have to remember is that God loves us. In the middle of our suffering, God loves us. He's for us. He's with us. He's in the middle of it. And another thing that we we have to get free from is this whole idea that God is punishing us. You ever felt that way? Man, I've been there. What, What did I do wrong? God, are you punishing me? We have to understand that God is not punishing us. You can't punish two people for the same crime. Somebody commits murder, then they go to life in prison. But you can't go convict somebody else of the same crime, and they get the same punishment. If you're a born-again Christian, Jesus was punished for your sins on the cross. He's been punished for it. So if you're suffering, God's not punishing you. He's already punished Jesus for your sin. What he's doing is he's disciplining you. Punishment looks to the past. Jesus has already taken care of that. If you're suffering, he's disciplining you. I'm not talking about the fallen world stuff. I'm talking about the relational stuff and the sin by us. He's disciplining you. And what discipline does is discipline looks forward, just like a good parent. You discipline your child because you don't want that behavior for them moving forward. You want a better future than what's in their past. We discipline those we love. When I was uh, a kid... The rod of discipline in my house was a ping-pong paddle. Anybody else have a rod of discipline, a wooden spoon or a ruler or something? So the rod of discipline in my house was a ping-pong paddle. I remember getting in trouble one time. and My dad got that paddle out. It actually had a target in the middle, which somehow just made it even worse. And he got that ping-pong paddle out. And I was a little suffering adverse like Peter, so I put a bunch of magazines in my pants so that when I got spanked, it wouldn't hurt. And, but I remember my dad, he would, you know, he'd, he'd spank us. And I, I look back now, of course, when you're an adult, it makes sense. But I remember he'd, he'd spank us, but what he would never do is, you're so terrible, you're so awful. The rest of your life, you're in purgatory, and you're the worst kid ever. It was never identity stuff. It was never, I'm so mad at you. It was correction. It was him trying to 
whip something out of me that needed to be corrected. You know, and it was always followed by love and by guidance and by, by pushing me forward. What he was trying to do was take out parts of my character that needed to be out of there. He was trying to teach me how to come under authority because my father's job was to raise me up in the way that I should go. So when we suffer, we have to understand God's not punishing us. He's disciplining us. He's trying to prepare us for the future. Listen to Hebrews 11, 7 through 11. The writer says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplined us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What a beautiful verse. If you are suffering, God is disciplining you. It's for your future. It's, it's just like a good earthly father would do to train you up in the way that you should go. As we read through the Old Testament, we hear verses like this in Hebrews. We hear Peter talk about suffering. Paul talk about suffering. James talks about suffering. And what we learn, if we look for it, is that suffering is normal. That right there is just should give us some freedom. It's just normal. We've got to stop thinking every time we go through something difficult that God's mad at us and the, the sky's falling and the world's falling apart. When we read the New Testament, we see persecution. We see satanic oppression. We see beatings. We see rejection. Suffering is normal. This is what the fathers and mothers of our faith knew. I love the quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, I've learned to embrace the waves that crash me into the rock of ages. Because he knew that too. You have to lean into it because God is doing something inside of you. Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 4, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for those trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. For the second time, Peter's telling us that suffering produces glory. Number six is you have to understand that suffering is the key to promotion. When we suffer, we're at this critical intersection. One way is God's way. And it's the way of faith. And the other way is Satan's desire. And it's the way of unbelief. And I've, I've talked about this once here before. But when we suffer, we're at this really strategic intersection of our life. Because we start to move into the place of doubt. Doubt's this middle ground. I'm not sure if God's still for me and if his promises are still true. And I'm kind of moving toward unbelief. And so we stand in this place of doubt, and we're kind of wavering. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. God has a desire to use suffering for our glory, as we're talking about. But Satan's desire is the opposite. He wants us to check out and quit and lose our faith. So let's, let's talk about it. I know there's three, three, uh, three for each of those in your handout. God's desire is to strengthen your faith. He wants you to walk down this path, and it's going to be a dark one for a while until the lights come on, but he wants you to put your hand in his hand. He wants you to lean in to his 
heart to hear his voice, everything we've been talking about, hear, believe, confess, obey, and he wants to keep showing himself faithful. Remember that scene in one of the Indiana Jones movies where there's this huge chasm, and it looks like there's no way across, and then they kind of sprinkle some sand, and they realize that the bridge actually blends in with, with the canyon wall. And so, but they don't know that at first, and so they just have to take this blind step of faith. And that's kind of what it feels like when you're going this way of faith during a dark night of the soul. It's, you're just walking by faith. You're just trusting that his word is true. And as you step out, you start to see him show up, and you start to see him come through. It reminds me of that old, that old footprints in the sand uh, poem where you can look back after you've gone for a while and see that there's one footprint because he was actually carrying you. But it's a walk of faith. And so it's God's desire is to strengthen our faith, but then also it creates dependency. When we come to a place where we humble ourselves and realize, I, I can't do this alone, or I can't get past this on my own, it presses us back into those roles that we talked about last week, where he's the source and we're the dependent. We want, we want to obey what he says. And we want to experience life. And so it creates this dependency on God, which is what he's desired all along. And then the third one is it softens our hearts. One of the major roles of suffering is it's supposed to make me more tender, more tender to what other people have gone through that I'm going going through. It's not supposed to harden our hearts. One of the saddest things I ever see is when people get to this critical intersection of suffering, and instead of getting better, they end up getting bitter. And their heart hardens. If we go all the way back to the alabaster jar, they're carrying this precious ointment, but their heart's so hard that it's not being released because they haven't allowed themselves to be broken. And then, of course, Satan's desire is the opposite. He wants to weaken our faith as we suffer, and he wants us to become self-sufficient. So we're unplugging from God and plugging in to ourselves to our woundedness, resentment, bitterness, and just wallowing in that, and those, those toxic thought patterns that come when we're going through something hard. It's building strongholds in our soul so that that container remains intact and the fragrance of God can't be released. We're, we're never in more danger than when we stand on the, the precipice of suffering. Because as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, he talks about that lion that's just waiting to devour us. But there's also the Lion of Judah, right? That wants to show up big and strong, but Satan imitates. And he's this roaring lion that wants to take us out. We're at this crossroad of suffering. And then, of course, Satan, the third thing is he wants to harden your heart. He wants to keep the jar intact. Let's listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. He says, humble yourselves. Remember, he's writing to sufferers. He says, humble yourselves. I'm going to stop there for for just a second, because nowhere in the Bible does it say that God humbles us. It's always humble yourself. It's a decision that we have to make. God can humiliate us through our circumstances and bring stuff to the surface, and we have to humble ourselves so that he can deal with it. But it's a choice that we have to make. I remember sitting across from someone who had committed sin, and it had affected a lot of people in a big way. I remember him saying, I'm so humiliated. But I knew that that's what God was, was doing. But what was so sad about it was he never humbled himself. The antidote for his suffering was confession and repentance. It was that God's desire is not just to humiliate him. It was to get him to confess and repent. 
So humiliation and humbling ourselves are two very, very different things. So Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. Remember, suffering is normal. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And that last line, praise God, after you have suffered a little while, that's the good part, right? Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Number seven is understand that suffering is temporary. There's going to come a time where the refiner looks over your life and the impurities have come up and you've humbled yourself and you cooperated with him and he's gotten the ladle out and he's removed things. It's been hard and it's exposed you and it's embarrassed you, but he's able to pour you in to that mold of who he created you to be and to use you in the way that he intended you. But it's your cooperation in the process that helps you to get it there. That's why James, his brother, writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lack nothing. I want to close this morning by telling a story, and then we're going to go into our reset moment. Last February... I can't I don't remember the exact dates. I think it was mid-February, but we had our, our last retreat here, the reset retreat. And two weeks before the retreat, I had shared something on my social media, just like a 30-second clip promoting the retreat. So it was people talking, and, and we, it was talking about getting unstuck and getting past your past. And a friend of mine sent me a message. It was like 9.30 at night. I hadn't talked to him in four years, I think it was. And he said, hey, did you and your brother start a church? Because there was a clip of my brother. I said, no, it's, you know, we're doing this nonprofit. This is what we do. And he just, he seemed real interested in it. And I, he lives in Utah now. And I said, well, you know, I'd love to have you come sometime. And, and um, we were texting back and forth. And I knew his story because in 2007, I met him. And we did inner city ministry together. And we were very close friends. There was a whole group of young adults that we would, every night we'd go to him and, and his wife's house. We'd pray into the night and then we'd get up in the morning. We'd go do inner city work. And, and he had a huge heart for inner city teens. And so he started this teen discipleship program. And I was a high school teacher at the time. So he just kind of wrote me in. He was really good about roping people in. And he built a whole team. And we built this big ministry. We ran buses and when we got it all ramped up, we had about 100 teenagers that we were bringing in from the inner city. And so then we were raising money to send them to camp. And we just created this whole big thing. And it, it, it was what he was called to do. And he was so good with those teens. And then as, the, you know, as life goes, different people in our group got married. And he moved away with his wife and kind of lost touch. And then the wife, who was a good friend of mine reached out and and he had committed sin and they ended up getting divorced and she actually came back and lived with me for a while and I uh, just kind of walked through that process with her and but my heart was so sad for him you know because I knew him and I knew his heart and 
we all fall short of the glory of God, but I just, I just knew what the enemy would want to do during that time. And life went on, and she got married, and he got remarried, and he had a young boy. And so when he reached out to me, it had been four years since I had heard from him, and I knew that what we do, that, that, that he needed it. And so I felt so bad, but my ringer was off on my phone. I didn't know it. And it was about 10 o'clock, he actually called me, and I missed it. So about 10.30, I saw it, and I said, I'm so sorry. You know, I didn't see that you called. And he said, well, let's, let's catch up later. He said, I've been having dreams that you and I are doing ministry together again. And I thought, you know, that's interesting. We don't ever talk. And so anyway, going, went to the retreat, got busy. A few days later, I checked my phone at night before I'm going to bed, and I saw his wife post he had committed suicide and of course I just felt so awful for him I felt awful for his son I felt awful for his wife I know his family and it just broke my heart and of course my mind went to he you know he reached out and he he was wanting help I didn't you know the depths of what he was going through but that night I went to bed and I had a dream and in my dream he was sitting across from me it was all white behind him and I said, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I wish I could have got you there. And he, he said, in not so many words, but he, he told me what he did. He actually told me how he had killed himself, and I didn't, I didn't know yet. I would find out later that that was what he did. And then he said this. He said, tell them, the people that come to your retreat, tell them my story. And when I woke up in the morning, I... I knew that it was God that had given me the dream, and I, and I wrote it down. And then I was asked to share at his funeral. And I shared that story, and I just made the commitment that I would share his story to the people going through our freedom process as a way of doing ministry with him together again. Because his life, sorry, his life shouldn't have turned out that way. He was gifted, he was called. But here's what happened to him. He stood at the edge of suffering because of sin by his own choice. And he chose to take the punishment for himself, rather believing that God could discipline him and work with him and remove those impurities and that God could use him again. Instead, he was lured away by the evil one that made him unplug that told him lies, he believed those lies, he confessed those lies, and he took a gun to his head, and he killed himself. And so today, as I'm sharing this message, I have an urgency in my spirit, because what I see the Lord doing on the earth in the last few years, with COVID and everything else, is he's bringing the impurities of the church, especially to the surface, because he wants to deal with them. And so we have to stop playing games about it. It's life or death. It's, it's destiny stuff. We can go the rest of our life and just be a nice little jar or container and never allow ourselves to be broken and the Spirit of God to be released. But that's what we're called to do. We are called to reach our neighbors. We are called to reach our coworkers. We are called to reach our family members. And we've got to get serious about bowing the knee and allowing ourselves to be broken so that we can be used by God. Amen. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. 
I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you a series of questions like we did our first week. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share today and to talk about an incredibly important topic. We think of Jesus in Gethsemane wrestling, being at this intersection where he, he really didn't want to suffer, but he knew that it was the only way. So we thank you, Jesus, that you've gone before us. You've walked this path. You're not asking us to do anything that you didn't do yourself. But we thank you that suffering produces resurrection, suffering, suffering produces glory. It's the only way for us to become like you. And so today, what I'm asking for this group of people Father, is that you open our eyes, that you open our eyes. Only revelation allows us to see exactly the way you see. So I'm asking this morning that you open our eyes and show us what you're doing in the midst of our suffering. I'm going to give you a series of questions here that I just want you to repeat these in your heart and then listen to what the Spirit of God might say to you. got to bring my suffering before you and I ask you to open the eyes of my heart and show me what you're trying to refine in me God, you are in a high and lifted up place. You have a different perspective on this situation. God, would you show me the enemy's strategy in what's going on in my life? Now, God, what might your better plan be? God, what can I do prayerfully to stop Satan's plan and invite your will into this situation? Be confession, repentance, intercession, forgiveness. 
What can I do prayerfully to stop Satan's plan? God, what can I do practically between me and people to stop Satan's plan and invite your will into this situation? God, show me what you want my life to look like on the other side of the suffering. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encouraged you. For additional resources or information on our upcoming events, head to resetministries.us. That's resetministries.us.